We are in John's Gospel. This is part 29. Title this morning, You Can't Believe in Jesus Until You've Rejected the Alternatives. You can't believe in Jesus until you've rejected the alternatives. And I want to show you where that idea is embedded in the last part of chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 66, 67, 68, and 69, and this will finish the sixth chapter, which is a really, you did well to hang in there studying John 6, because John 6 is not a light theological kind of breezy devotional passage. The apostle is dealing with some of the biggest subjects that our minds can handle. So we've been four weeks. John 6, 66 to 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You remember last week, we looked at some of those verses where Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and the disciples were saying, this is a hard saying. Who can, who can handle this? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And what a moment this must have been. Jesus said to the 12, remember, he went up on a mountain and prayed all night about choosing the 12, okay? So Jesus said to the 12, are you going to? Are you leaving me? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? What a great question. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know. Isn't that interesting, the order? I would have done it the other way. Believing and then knowing. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I wanted so much to finish up John 6 last Sunday. It's a very dense passage to study in a local church. Seminaries debate the chapter. Scholars write about it. We made it through, and you've done well to hang in there and study it with me. But you can't just leave this chapter without one more teaching time. There are two thoughts that I want to explore in these verses. First, there's the way Peter demonstrates what I think abiding faith in Jesus is really all about. By that I mean, I like the way when pressed by Jesus about perseverance. Are you going away? Peter, he compares. He compares following Jesus with turning to anything else. Where where else will we go, Lord? To whom should we go? If not you, then what? That's what Peter says. I like that. So real faith has, has already considered and eliminated other options, lots of options. So this is the, I think, the most absolute difference between placing trust in Jesus 
and just knowing about Jesus or maybe even liking Jesus and some of the things that he does. So that's the first thing I like, the nature of faith in the comparison Peter makes. And the second thing, I said there were two things I wanted to study. There's the way Peter's answer sets up the order of of spiritual knowing and certainty, because it's the opposite of what you'd expect. He says in verse 69, he and the rest of the disciples, we, he actually says, we have believed and then come to know who Jesus really is. And that just kind of seems like the opposite of a good academic approach to a subject. So those are the two targets for today's study. Point number one. People who don't live for Christ will inevitably live for something less. I didn't say something else. I said something less. People who don't live for Christ will inevitably live for something less. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I like the way Peter's question assumes something. It it assumes that everyone, everyone has options. Everyone makes choices. I read that in the devotional. Everyone is go, everyone's going somewhere. To whom shall we go? Everyone's going. Everyone lives for some ultimate end, some goal. So in not following Jesus Christ as Lord, we don't live with, without a master. No one roams life without following someone or something. If not Christ, then something and someone else will be the object of my devotion. The only question is, the only question is, to whom shall we go? Not whether or not we go. Everyone follows something. Everyone follows someone. That great theologian of the church, Bob Dylan, said, you got to serve somebody. Remember that song? It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. you got to serve somebody. That's what we see Peter talking about in this text. The idea here is, Something is always shaping our lives. That's the key principle. Our lives take the shape of something or someone. We all attach ourselves to something or someone, an ambition, a dream, a goal, for better, for worse. We all end up in one mold or another. No one lives without adopting a worldview. We all take the shape of something or someone else passage that probably talks about it in the terms we're most familiar with would be Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be, say that, say that word out loud with me right there, 
conformed shape. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, there's options, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are, those are truth-telling verses, not just religious verses. Everyone is being shaped. Everyone conforms. The only open question is, where are we going? What shape? To whom do we go? Point number two. Dynamic faith in Christ is one that first calculates the emptiness of all other options. There is a spiritual power in Peter's question to Jesus in that 68th verse. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to to whom shall we go? You, You have the words of eternal life. And what I want you to see is Peter's question sort of defines genuine faith. Peter recognizes the power of faith in Christ to to transform and satisfy the whole life. It rests on a foundation that's already considered the futility of the other options. The point of John's account is really worth noting. By the time, think about it. By the time Jesus asked Peter, whether or not the disciples will also leave. By the time Jesus asks that question, Peter had already calculated the emptiness of leaving. Well, Lord, you're the only one with eternal life. Are you guys also going to go away? And they've thought it through. Well, no, they're not going away. Why aren't they going away? Well, because... You're the only one with the words of eternal life. I can't get this anywhere else, Peter says. And he speaks for the group. Maybe I can say it this way. Those who left Jesus only calculated the cost of following Jesus. Those who stayed with Jesus calculated the higher cost of leaving Jesus. Do you see the difference? Those who left only saw the cost of following. Those who stayed had calculated the higher cost of leaving. Lord, where are we going to go? Like, there's nothing out there. That's how Peter... And the disciples had started following Jesus. They were all doing other things, fishing, tax collectors. Follow me. They leave everything and they follow Jesus. You make that commitment. It overrides all the other ones. So maybe there's a lesson here. Peter is showing me that I should never close my eyes and raise my hands and sing, I have decided to follow Jesus unless... I'm also prepared to sing a song that nobody's written yet. I've decided to follow Jesus instead of. That's that's where faith is found. The power of faith 
is in the ruling out of other options, not just professing love for Jesus. When you grasp that principle, you'll see it reinforced over and over again in the New Testament. You'll just bump into it repeatedly. Let me just give you an example. I won't wear you out. You know this story. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, testing this guy, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus said this, he said to him, and I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to see what happened to this guy's face. He's beaming when he says, I know, Jesus, you don't have to list all the commandments. I have kept those perfectly. (laughs) And there he stands. And Jesus heard this, the text says, and he said to him, well, you still lack something. I'd like you to sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor You'll have treasure in heaven, and then follow me. What, what? But when he heard these things, that's this ruler, became very sad. He was extremely rich. I mean, people have pondered what's going on in this text for years. The way to approach this account is is maybe to ask first, just ask the question. Is Jesus being harsh or gracious in this conversation with the rich young ruler? Are these harsh words or are they loving words? And I'm going to argue in just a minute that they're very loving words. Now, the other issue with the rich young ruler account is whether Jesus asked this same requirement of all who followed him? Well, we know the answer to that one. I mean, clearly he didn't. So so why? Why does Luke and the Holy Spirit, why does Luke feel it's important that we have at least this account recorded for our consideration when we follow Jesus? What's the point of this story, this account? So those two questions. Are they harsh or loving words? And what's the point? Regarding that first question, I think the words of Jesus are loving words. Because in them, Jesus forces this ruler to consider all the other options of devotion at the very beginning of his decision regarding whether he's going to follow Jesus or not. In other words, the issue of Peter's to whom shall we go, that's what Jesus is putting right front and center for this rich young ruler right out of the gate. There's choices here. Options. What are you pouring your life into? And the reason Jesus' words are loving is he refuses to let this rich ruler kid himself that well, he'll get more serious about following Jesus more exclusively later on. Because Jesus knows the rich young ruler will lose that battle unless he 
unless he confronts it right out of the gate. Most of us are like that. These words from Jesus are loving words because they help this ruler understand what believing in Jesus really means. They, they keep this rich young ruler from becoming a fake follower of Jesus. Now, the other issue as to why the Holy Spirit's Spirit includes this rather unique demand of Jesus to this ruler, why it's in your New Testament, I think the answer is at least once, at least once, we get to see vividly the kind of conscious choosing faith in Jesus always requires in different ways in all of our lives. But we get to see it's a big decision. Jesus is forcing that to whom shall we go issue in obvious terms. Now, true, the choice isn't perhaps always made as visible as Jesus makes it with this rich young ruler, but this one account shows us the kind of exclusive attachment Jesus always demands from every follower right when they come, right out of the gate. Back to Peter. He has chosen to follow Christ the Messiah. But if he chose not to follow Christ, he wisely recognizes that he won't live the rest of his life without outside influence. True. If he chooses not to follow Christ, if he were to forsake Christ, he would find and follow something else somewhat else, he would end up giving his life to something much smaller and much emptier. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else? Where else are we going to go? Point number three. Faith in Christ always looks forward enough to consider eternal horizons. It's in that 68th verse. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, the words of eternal life. Words of eternal life. For Peter, this is what narrowed down the field of choices. To who else could he go to find eternal life? And that decided the issue for Peter. That decided the issue for the disciples. Judas... Judas is just a typical picture of what happens to all of us who fall in love with the money bag or other things rather than the eternal reward of Jesus Christ. Lives will always be misspent that look forward to immediate gratification rather than eternal words of life. It was Peter's consideration of eternity that caused him to rest faith in Christ. So if, if I'm blind enough to only consider fleeting tidbits of happiness, there are all sorts of others to whom I can go. Lots of them. 
But if I sense the fast passing of life and crave eternal joy, eternal significance, then there's nowhere else to go but to Christ. Uh, And again, Jesus made this a baseline test for all who had come to him. Here's another example. Jesus told his disciples, if if anyone, so this isn't just like rich young ruler talk, if anyone would come after me, that's following him, let him him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life, there's other, other places to go, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, loses his life is this means this, taking up the cross, denying self. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? To whom shall we go? What will a man give in return for his soul? This is Jesus' counsel when considering the to whom shall we go question. Can the object of my life's devotion stand the test of eternity? Will will my choice lead to short-term joy? Will I regret my choice when I consider it from the other side of the grave? Because Jesus says, I can't reverse my choice at that point. Happiness outside of Christ is always going to be short-lived. Happiness outside of Christ is always going to be short-lived, something else. Notice the way Jesus introduces this whole conversation with the summons to take up our cross. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's my conviction. If we only understood these words, we wouldn't shy away from Jesus' take up your cross language. If we only really understood. We need to consider what it is that dies on that cross that we take up. We need to settle once and for all that Jesus is not out to diminish my existence. He's out to put to death the other options for life that I might foolishly choose if I let them linger around the fringes of my mind. And he's saying, you need to kill those right now. He's out to put to death the other options for life He's protecting me from misspent ambitions. What dies on that cross, what dies on that cross are all the other things to which I might be tempted to look for life. What dies on the cross are all the things to which I might be tempted to look for life. And Jesus loves me too much to leave those options available. Lord, to whom shall we go? The cross I take up is one on which 
All the other to whom shall we go options are eliminated. Jesus isn't mean. He kills false hopes and false joys. Point number four, and I'm almost done. This preciousness, the preciousness of Christ can't be perceived by the outside observer. This is how I want to wrap up. 669, and we have believed, notice this is one time believed, and have come to know, it looks like a process, doesn't it? Come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I just want to wrap up this way. I think there's a comfort side and a warning side that the church needs to hear in those words. There's comfort to the believer who has a hard time understanding the disdain for Christ that he or she experiences in a pagan culture, that university class, that professor, that group you hang with. People outside of Christ can never see the beauty of his person. They can't know Christ. They they can't share your devotion and worship of God the Son. They can't do it. And even if you can argue them into acknowledging certain truths about your beliefs, Christ's existence, the miracles, this still won't necessarily cause them to treasure Christ the way you do. You see, apologetics can open a window for faith, but it can never drag people through the doorway. Here's what I'm saying. Take comfort that the lack of love for Christ by the world is no reflection on the legitimacy of your faith. Take comfort. Take comfort that the lack of the ability of the world to treasure Christ is no reflection on the legitimacy of your faith. But there's warning too. There there is an emptiness in any attempted religious profession that is merely uh, mimicked, mimicked from Christian parents, mimicked from a church community. Look at Peter's words again. Ponder them deeply. We have believed and have come to know that there's a kind of knowing Christ that only happens on the inside. You don't see it from the outside. First you believe, then you know. You can only experience the worth of Christ from the inside of your own relationship with him. You have to believe for yourself. You have to enter in. You have to unchoose every other devotion. Your faith has to be your faith in Christ. So here we sit. You may know a little, or you may know almost nothing of all the saving life and joy in Christ. Or you may live close to the trimmings of religion, but don't commit your own love and trust in following Christ. 
you're willing, you can know Jesus at a deeper level than perhaps you presently think. Maybe you think all there is is what you hear said and perceive and you observe from a distance. You can know him, not just know about him. You can know him, not just associate with other people who have come to know him. Know for yourself, believe for yourself, trust the words of Jesus who never lies, and remember this life-altering text. Here's the point I want to make. Wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, if this text is true and Peter's question is valid, there is, there is less life. Wherever you're looking outside of Jesus, there is less life there than you might think. Whatever you're looking to apart from Jesus, there is less life there than you might think. You will never be satisfied in the depth of your being because you were created to know God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.